love this little dog you've got. And then Laurel said, what would happen if I spoke to them about Jesus? They probably wouldn't want Jesus at all. They love the dog, but they don't love Jesus. And I said, it's exactly what we just sung about then. The puppy actually reveals the glory of God. You might say, how does a puppy reveal... When somebody looks at a pup, they just think this, this, this thing's cute, it's lovely, it's adorable. And they think, what a, what a wonderful creation. But that creation should lead them to the creator. That's why I say then the pup declares the glory of God, just like we sung there about brooks and streams and things should declare the glory of God, and they do declare the glory of God. But unfortunately as well, uh, people don't really want to hear about the creator. They love the creation, but not the creator. So a great song to finish off with there. Uh, Lauren, thanks very much for that. Book of John, we're uh, still working our way through. We've got um, up to chapter 12 today and uh, probably another seven or eight to go to finish off. Uh, We'll probably get there um, probably early, middle of next term. I think uh, we'll be into uh, the end of John and I'm looking forward to that. Not the end of John, but just working through the last few chapters here. Um, Today, for those of you uh, who may have a good memory and um, probably quite a ways back for some people, Uh, Back in 1971, hands up if you're alive in 1971, there's a handful of hands going up, Uh, there was a man there by the name of uh, Malcolm Fraser and he made this famous quote. Can anybody tell me what that quote was? Life wasn't meant to be easy is what Malcolm Fraser said back then. Uh, It certainly was one of those famous quotes that haven't gone away. Life wasn't meant to be easy. It actually comes from a George Bernard Shaw play, I think, or something along those lines. And he said that during a time of political turmoil in Australia. And I'm sure that things didn't really change for Malcolm Fraser, even though he did later become Prime Minister very soon after that. Uh, As he experienced life, he certainly would have experienced much difficulty in life, and that probably just even gave more meaning to the expression and the quote that he made there. Uh, Life isn't meant to be, or life wasn't meant to be easy. Life isn't easy, it is difficult. And as we see today uh, with Jesus, the king of the universe, he calls his disciples to perhaps a more difficult life in following him. It's one of those challenging passages here in the book of John today. Uh, We'll be looking at this where Jesus actually calls disciples uh, down to the Calvary Road. So if you've got your Bibles, let's go to John chapter 12 and uh, let's read from verse 12 through to verse 26. Starting at verse 12, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. 
Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. Father, we do thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you inspired John the Apostle to write this for us 2,000 years ago. Not only for himself and the believers then, but for us today. This word is alive and living. Your word tells us that it's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of uh, joints and marrow and discerning the heart, the thoughts and the heart of the, uh, of the heart. So Lord, today we pray that you will just open this word up into our hearts now, the challenging passage here that uh, Jesus talks about. Uh, help us to shed light on that and help us, Lord, to uh, see good things about Christ, that we too would be called upon that Calvary road, that we too would walk that road, Lord, knowing it is both hard and glorious. Please help us now in that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We find Jesus here in this chapter um, approaching the last days of his life. Uh, Death is imminent for Christ. It's less than a week away. It's only days away before Jesus will be crucified. Uh, And with that, we find Jesus is determined to stay the course that he knows has been put before him by God the Father in uh, complete agreement with the Trinity before the beginning of time. And with Jesus, he wants to keep the main thing the main thing. He wants to uh, make sure these guys are right on cue here with what's true and what's needed for them in their lives. And Jesus has come ultimately here to glorify God the Father. And this he will do ultimately by being crucified on a Roman cross. That is the supreme purpose that Jesus came. Uh, Yes, certainly we are saved, but that wasn't the highest purpose. The highest purpose for Christ in coming was to glorify God the Father by his death on that Roman cross. And through that, we will be saved and are saved by what Jesus has done. So this is where John is going over these next few chapters here as we round out uh, this book of John. It will centre around these last few days of Jesus' life here on earth uh, before his death and his resurrection. And what Jesus has to say in these last chapters is really life-building stuff. It's really like putting deep, concrete foundations in your life to build yourself upon. It's the sort of truth that Jesus will talk about that cuts through all the fluff of life. And there's lots of fluff around life. There really is sort of just frivolous type stuff, which might give us a bit of joy and happiness here and there. But a lot of it really is just like a, a bubble of hot air that just disappears. Uh, the stuff that Jesus will talk about here is the, something eternal to build on and to trust in as well. Jesus won't be alerting anybody here to an eBay sale over these next few chapters or telling them where they can find the best bargain around town. Jesus will get to the heart of the matter of what's critically and crucially important for our lives. He'll be sharing straight from his heart to strengthen us and to lead us to eternal life and eternal joy with him. So today as we journey together as a body of or community believers here at Exchange, uh, we will see that Jesus, I only call him George, Jesus calls us down... I nearly said George because we've got a cat at home called George and we're trying to get rid of it, so I'm not sure where that thought came from. (laughs) Jesus will call us down Calvary's road to join him in a road that is both very, very hard 
and a road that ends in absolute glory. That's where we're going to go today. Firstly, though, to help us get the context of why and where Jesus is saying this, we will need to see that Jesus is actually announcing himself here as the king of the world. Jesus isn't just a king of many kings. He is the king of all kings. And Jesus is like no other king, though, in this king of the world. There's two quotations that John actually uses here from the Old Testament to help us to see that. Now, the first one that John has there for us is where they wave these palm branches and uh, Jesus, as he makes his way into Jerusalem, and they cry out there what is a direct quote from Psalm 118. They cry out there, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So they are calling him the King. A direct quote there that's come from something written maybe thousands of years before. And that's precisely the custom they would do back then in waving these palm branches Uh, before somebody and that was to signify a king is coming into this town or someone of high notability is coming into this town, someone of very uh, eminent importance is coming in. So they were actually signifying this is the king. And then John goes on to sort of join the dots for us as well because he saw the dots begin to line up for himself as he read through the Old Testament and he saw this exactly as the book of Zechariah had seen it because Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And what do we just see in John's gospel? Jesus come in on the colt of a donkey. Fulfilling scripture. Jesus is the king of Israel. For John, it is crystal clear. He may not have seen it on that day, But later on, the Holy Spirit did connect all the dots in John's mind. He said, hang on, this Jesus, he is the real deal. He is the king of Israel. This is the the king that the Bible talks about here as the ultimate king. And Jesus is like no other king. He's a humble king. He's seeking no fanfare or great publicity coming in. He comes in there on a donkey's colt. If he had been a Roman king, he would come in a grand chariot lined with all sorts of gold and regalia. But not Jesus. Jesus is a king like no other king. But what's important here to see, though, Jesus doesn't shy away here from this kingship title, this title of being the king. Earlier in John, about probably five or six chapters back, when he had um, fed them lots of food from a handful of, uh, just a handful, he fed about 5,000, 15,000 people. They wanted to forcibly make him king then because they thought this guy's going to give us food all the time. And Jesus sort of actually shied away from that because he knew his time was not yet ready. But Jesus this time is not doing that. He's happy to actually take this acclamation and rightly so because he knows he is the king of Israel. And not only Israel's king, but he ultimately understands that he is the king of the whole world, the king of the universe. And I think John wants us to see this when he mentions here this passage in 19. It's the Pharisees making a comment and they say, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. There's a sense here where John's trying to actually help us to see that he's not only Israel's king, he is the king of the world. And John demonstrates this here again in the next verse, in verse 20 trying to actually show here where these people from the world are coming to Jesus this king. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethesda in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. These Greeks are not 
Jews, they are Gentiles. They're from other parts of the world. So here's John, I think, trying to help us to see that Jesus is not only king of Israel, which he is, but he's ultimately the king of the world. From people all over this planet, and Revelation tells us that he will call the people to himself from every tribe and tongue and and, uh, nation around this great world that God has created. Jesus is the king of the whole world. This is precisely what God has given to him. We need to make no mistake about that, even though we can't see it perhaps in a physical dimension at this point in time. Jesus truly is the King of Australia. He is. He's the King of Victoria. He's the King of the Goulburn Valley. Jesus is the King of the greater shepherding community. Jesus is the King of this church, Exchange Church. This is the kingship that God has given to Jesus. Absolute supreme authority wherever you can find any scrap of land or space or matter anywhere Jesus is that king. And Jesus doesn't deny that position. He's not actually trying to run away from the crowd as he comes in. He knows his position and he knows his mission at this time. So now we have some Greeks who come to Philip who want to see King Jesus. Now for all intents and purposes, we could actually substitute ourselves for these Greeks. We have some people here from the greatest shepherding community who want to come and see Jesus. And truly, that is our prayer here at this church. We want many, 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 many people have that desire. I want to come and see King Jesus. And we will come and show you King Jesus here through the Bible, here through the lives of us living for him in that way. And this is our mission here at Exchange. We want to connect people to Jesus, the King, and we want to grow people in Jesus, the King as well, to have transformed lives that reflect his great glory in and around this community that we live in. This is the King. But Jesus' response here to Philip's request is a little confusing at first. They come, Philip and Andrew, and they talk to Jesus and say, we've got some Greeks who want to see you. But what we don't see with Jesus here is making a time and a place to see them and answer their questions. He's not sort of saying, hey, meet me down at the, at the oasis at such and such and let's talk about life. Not at all. Instead, Jesus goes on to say some probably unusual things. <clears throat> Jesus talks about death. Jesus talks about hating his life and Jesus talks about being a servant as we just read through those passages there. As I thought about that and was praying about it through the week, I really believe that this is how King Jesus wants people to see him in this unusual way. Jesus wants people to see him glorified on the cross. This is what Jesus wants us to see about him. Jesus wants people to see the glory of God as it were emanating out of the life of Christ as he dies on the cross. This is the central point that Jesus wants us to see. Jesus could have said a whole heap of other things. He could have told them about all the people that he's raised from the dead. He could have told them about all the blind eyes that he'd opened or the deaf ears that he'd made uh, able to hear or fed the thousands of people off a couple of scones and a few fish fingers. He could have told them about all these extraordinary miracles, about this is who I am, this is what I've done. But Jesus doesn't do that. All those things would make him look glorious. They would. No no one else can do that. Only he can. But Jesus ultimately wants to point people, these people, the Greeks or any people for that matter, to the cross, to the crucified death he's about to die on in a few days' time. Because it's here. It really is here that we see the highest form of the highest point of God's glory as his son is uh, brutally slain upon the cross for our sins. At the cross, we see the king, the king who's already been announced, and he hasn't pushed that away. At the cross, we see the king 
laying down his life for our sins. This then begins to set up here why Jesus is talking in this way and responding to these Greeks and to us today as we read this. Because we need to see that this is the way of the king. The way of the king. Jesus, who has come to save and rescue people from sin and Satan, will suffer hardship before he is ultimately glorified. This is the way of the king. Jesus knows that salvation can only come by death on a cross. And he talks about that here as he looks at death in verse 24. And in verse 24 he says this as he begins to respond. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What Jesus is saying, if he doesn't stay the course of going to Calvary, if he doesn't stay on the mission, if he doesn't walk Calvary's road up to Golgotha, where the cross is waiting for him, there will be no fruit of salvation. There will be no salvation unless Jesus stays the course and goes to the cross. It's just like if you buy a seed from the supermarket in a packet of seeds. If you leave that seed in the packet in the um, laundry cupboard or wherever you might keep your seeds or in the garden shed at the back, if you just leave that seed in there, what will that seed do in that packet left in the garden shed? Nothing. Well, the rats or mice might get in there and eat through the packet and eat the seed. That's about all that will happen. It'll get consumed by perhaps uh, some mice or some rats doesn't matter how long that seed stays in that packet, it won't do anything if it's left alone as such in that packet. But if that seed is, as it were, planted in the earth, then it will produce a fruitful harvest. As long as the caterpillars don't get to it and desiccate the harvest. But generally that's what happens. You plant seed, it produces. Produces multiple seeds and produces fruitfulness. So just as Jesus dies and is buried... He makes atonement for our sins and from his death comes much fruit, fruitfulness. And perhaps these Greeks in this chapter will be part of that fruit that comes from his death on this cross in the fruitfulness of salvation and seeing many people come to be saved. That fruit will be you and I if we are trusting in Christ. We are part of this fruit that gets born from Jesus as it were, this seed that dies and is planted in the ground and bears fruit. There will be fruit in our people in our community who have not yet come to Jesus as well. It will be the same fruit that Jesus talks about there. That as we proclaim the gospel and call people to come and follow Christ, they will be part of this fruit that comes from his death as he produces that uh, salvation for us. There will be much fruit that comes from the death of Jesus Christ. So this is what Jesus wants these Greek inquirers to hear about him. And it's no difference for any inquirer today who comes to uh, find out about Jesus. We will say many things about Christ. (coughs) Sorry, folks. We will say many things about Jesus. It's it's not wrong at all to talk about the miracles and to talk about God's grace and to talk about the way he strengthens us and the way he gives us peace and the way he gives us joy. They're all great things to talk about. But ultimately, what Jesus wants us to tell people about him is the cross, is the cross. He wants us at some point to get to this central point of his life and to talk about his life, death and resurrection as the very pinnacle of who Jesus is. That's what Jesus wants people to see about him. And that's exactly 
hear what Jesus goes on with these two sharing with these Greek visitors. Perhaps, perhaps he was speaking to them. Maybe it was relayed through Andrew and Philip. We don't exactly know. But Jesus actually goes on further, though, with these Greek inquirers as well. He goes on now to the call of discipleship with Jesus. He not only wants to talk about his death and it producing fruit because his death will make an atonement for sins, but he now wants wants to go on and talk about discipleship. And there's four things that I could see here that Jesus is calling disciples to in this passage. And what we'll see here again is Jesus is telling his disciples that before glory, hardship will come. Before glory comes, there will be hardship. Being a Christian and following Jesus won't be easy. It will be hard. It will be challenging. It will be difficult. But glory awaits the other side. Four things. First one here, death. Just as Jesus dies for us, we are to die to self. We no longer rule our own hearts as a follower of Jesus. We actually die to our own self-interest and uh, now Jesus rules our hearts. There's a death that we go through as Christians. It's not necessarily a physical death, but it's more a death to those desires that are in conflict with Christ. All manner of desires rise up in our hearts. So we need to identify the ones that are in conflict with Christ or across purposes to Jesus. And it's those desires that we die to. Death is a hard thing. It's hard to put those desires to death in us because sometimes they are really strong. But we understand that they are really wrong at the same time. Second one. Jesus says something here that's really confusing perhaps. In verse 25, he uses this strong term towards our lives. He says this. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is calling us to hate our lives. That's confusing. You know, well, what do you mean by this, Jesus? Hate our lives. What's, what's happening here? What, what does that mean? I've, you know, I've seen on those texts that people send sometimes, HML, you know, hate my life. Probably describing some sort of bad circumstance or something they've been through. Jesus is calling us here to hate our lives. This, this idea here with the word hate that Jesus uses is actually a preference, a preferring one thing over another. Um, the best example I could sort of come up with, and which I think is a good example, people are laughing already, how did it started? Will I eat Brussels sprouts or will I eat chocolate? There's a strong preference there, isn't there? Will I eat Brussels sprouts or will I eat chocolate? What will I prefer over the other? Now, I say it's a good example because actually your preference will be so strong for chocolate it will look like you actually hate the Brussels sprouts. But there probably are some people who do hate Brussels sprouts anyway. But, but it's, it's demonstrating here, not so much you hate this green thing that God has so wonderfully produced for us in the Brussels sprout. Not that you hate it, but your preference is so strong for chocolate over probably anything else, even if it isn't Brussels sprouts, it'll look like you actually hate the Brussels sprouts. So the idea that Jesus is carrying here is this preference preferring something over something else. So Jesus is saying here, you must prefer me, Christ, over and above any other desire of self that comes into conflict with him. You must prefer me in your life. 
It must look like you hate certain sections of your life because you're just not going to go near some of those sections because you prefer me and my way. This is what Jesus is talking about. And he actually says it again elsewhere in Luke, uh, Luke 14. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Same thing. Jesus is saying, if you are going to put anything like your family or anything else that you hold dear to you in your life before me, as in other words, a preference order, if you're going to put all these things on top and then Jesus comes a distant second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh or whatever, Jesus is saying then you cannot be my disciple because you haven't truly met me and you aren't truly wanting to follow me. Jesus is saying if you're not holding me as number one in your life, preferring me above everything and actually looking at other things, then you cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not saying don't honour your parents or respect your parents. Jesus is not saying in the sense of, oh yeah, go and hate your brothers or sisters or wife or family. He's not saying that in the sense how you might literally take that because when you truly prefer Jesus above everything else, you will truly and rightly love your wife and mother and father and brothers and sisters and friends and whatever. He's not saying that. So you've got to understand here this point, it's a preference It's a preference that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is using strong language because he's making a big call of what the cost of discipleship is. Being a Christian's heart. Jesus says also in the third one here as well, we must follow him. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. What does Jesus have in mind here when he says this about following him? Well, what's the context of what Jesus is talking about here in this passage? Where's Jesus actually going when he talks about this? Jesus is going to Calvary. He's talking about the cross. So to be a disciple of Jesus, we must be willing to follow him to Calvary. We must be willing to follow him on that path there that Jesus is following, which is a hard, hard road for Jesus. Fourth one. In that same verse also, Jesus calls us to servanthood, to serve, to serve Jesus. Who really likes to be a servant? Nobody really. We don't really like to serve. We'd rather be served. The world in all of its ultimate pleasure is all about you or me being served. That's the ultimate in life in this world that we live in. If we could think of a, or sometimes we see it on some of those ads on on the internet or TV, uh, that life is at its highest point of pleasure and joy when you're um, lying back on some Pacific island somewhere and you are getting servants who are beckoning and call for your every want. That's sort of you know, them serving you. That's like the ultimate in life. No one really likes to be a servant. But Jesus is calling us to humble servanthood as a disciple following him, to serve. Is part of the discipleship call here that Jesus is making. You see, being a Christian is hard. Discipleship uh, requires difficult things, hard things. Jesus said again the same thing in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 7, he says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. That's the easy path. And those who enter by it are many, which is terribly sad. Verse 14, for the gate is narrow 
And the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus is just being honest with us and truthful with us. He's not beating around the bush. He's actually saying it how it is in this world. This is the call that he makes for us. Being a Christian will be hard. Here's six quick examples to try and actually highlight that further. It's hard to be a Christian at work. Sometimes it's really hard. They want to talk dirty during the breaks and they want you to join in with them when they're cheating on the company in whatever ways they may choose to do that. You sit around the smoko table and it becomes trash talk. It's hard to be a Christian at work. Difficult. It's hard to be a Christian at school. You'll get singled out and you'll get picked on for being a churchy person. There's peer group pressure to follow an ungodly trend or an ungodly way. There's pressure there pulling you away from the ways of Christ. It's hard to be a Christian at school. It's hard to be a Christian at home sometimes. It really is, depending on your home life. Sometimes for some people, they're the only person who's a Christian in a family. It's very difficult. They can feel very isolated and overwhelmed. We had one uh, young girl we used to pick up, um, our family used to pick up every Sunday uh, to go to church. And she was basically the only believer in that family. And very difficult. She'd have to find her own way out the road. We'd pick her up and take her to church and bring her back home at the time. She did that for years and years and years. It's hard to be a Christian at home sometimes. Very difficult. It's hard to be a Christian with my money. It is. All of my giving over the years, I could have bought a brand new car. I could have gone on a great holiday. It's hard to be a Christian. It's hard to be a Christian with my time. It's a sacrifice. It's difficult. It's a challenge. It seems so much more enjoyable to just grab a nice coffee and have a walk around the lake on Sunday morning instead of joining with my brothers and sisters in church. It seems so much more appealing with my time to go and do that than to come and meet with brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes it's even hard to be a Christian in a small church. It is. Because you look at the big church down the road and they've just got everything happening. Got nice big flash building, they've got ministries that are going left, right, and centre, they've got lots of people here and lots of people doing this. And here I am in this small church and I seem to be working so hard but getting little recognition for it. And sometimes that big church just looks brighter and better down the road. But God's called me to this church to serve and to glorify Him. It's hard to be a Christian sometimes in a small church. Many, many other countless examples you could put in there about the difficulties of being a Christian. Make no mistake what Jesus calls these Greeks to and anybody else for that matter. It will be a road that has its difficulties in following Christ. It will be hard. But also make no mistake with Jesus here in this passage because he also says this, the path that he calls us to is hard but it ends in unspeakable glory. And it's so important to get that because we can get really bogged down or locked into the challenge and the difficulty of Christian life and we're not shying away from that. We actually are recognising that. But Jesus, just as much, if not more, is also pointing us towards the glory that comes from following him and choosing him as our Lord and Saviour. Yes, the road may be very difficult in numbers of challenges, but this road is a road that leads to joy unspeakable in Christ. Let's look at those same four things again 
and see how Jesus shows that each time. Yes, we do die to ourselves in verse 24, as Jesus speaks about dying, but what did that death lead to? In Christ's perspective, it leads to fruitfulness. And it's no different for us. Not fruitfulness in this point in the sense of that we are going to save people, but fruitfulness in the sense that we will bear the fruits of a Christ-centered life. We will bear the fruits here of a blessed life, enjoying peace with Christ in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the challenge, or in the middle of the difficulties that we may be facing. We will lead a fruitful life, spiritually speaking, which will be uh, unspeakable as far as its riches are concerned here in this life, to have that peace and joy in the middle of challenges. A fruitful life comes from a life and dying to self. Second one, we keep our life. Yes, Jesus, I need to hate my life as in preferring your way over a life of self-indulgence in the pleasures of this world, as it says there in verse 25, hating our lives. But if I choose that life, as in preferring you over everything else, what's it say there? In fact, I will keep my life. That sounds like a pretty good thing to keep, doesn't it? I'll actually keep my life. I won't lose it. I'll keep my life. And in turn, that life will bubble up into eternal life. Life never ending. Jesus, with you, as I keep, as I uh, prefer you, I get eternal life. Third one, yes, I must follow you, Jesus, to Calvary, like it says there in verse 26, following Christ. But where does that end up? If I follow Jesus to Calvary, where does that end up? Jesus says, where I am, you will be. So, okay, where's Jesus going to be after the resurrection and he's glorified? Where is that? Jesus has returned to glory. So where Jesus is, I will be. Yes, I will follow him, and where I follow him to, I ultimately follow him to glory, and I am there forever and forever. That sounds pretty good to me. Fourth one. Jesus calls me to servanthood. We're called to serve as Christians, called to serve as believers, to humbly serve wherever we find ourselves. But where does that servanthood lead to as we are called to this service? What does Jesus say there in verse 26? If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. That sounds pretty good too, doesn't it? God the Father, the almighty God who has created everything that we can see, will pour honour into our lives. He will richly reward us as we serve Christ. If we could just stop and think about that, that is an honour that cannot be even thought of here at all here upon this earth. We will be honoured by God. We will be richly rewarded by God for serving Jesus Christ, no matter where it is, whether it's just putting out chairs here on a Sunday morning or uh, doing what Rod's doing in uh, Central Asia uh, in a missionary-type setting. God will richly honour those who serve Jesus Christ. Discipleship is hard. It really is. But it is both hard and glorious. It really and truly is glorious. There is untold blessing that is awaiting for us, but it's a future blessing primarily. We will have tastes of it in this life, in a spiritual sense, and in a physical sense, in fellowship with others. And we will experience God in many other ways, but the fullness of this life, of this glory, is a fullness that is to come, that we will experience in the future. 
We will go through forms of hardship. And, and I, as I thought about that, it's a bit like people who are preparing to climb Mount Everest. I can imagine people preparing to climb Mount Everest, the first thing they are doing is they are imagining themselves standing on top of that mountain, as it were, fist pumping. I've made it. I've climbed this mountain. The feeling of jubilation and the feeling of satisfaction and this overwhelming feeling of completion as they've got to the top of Mount Everest. That will be their initial thoughts as they think about that moment. What happens after that? Sorry, after they had that dream at the start. Then they go through months and months and months of gruelling training, preparing to climb Mount Everest. They go through all sorts of pain and hardship, preparing their bodies to go through all sorts of difficulties just to climb to the top of that mountain and to raise their hand up to say they've done it. It's a picture here of the Christian life. There is challenges, there is difficulties, but there is a point in the future where we will raise our hands in exclamation and praise to the one who's made it all possible for us. This has been Christianity right throughout the centuries. No different. There's a road of hardship that leads to glory and eternal rest. So today, if you are feeling weary, if you're feeling confused about your Christian life, if you're going through hardship and wondering, is this right? Am I on the right path? Is this how the Christian life should be? Should I have this much difficulty? Should I be having these troubles? I thought it was going to be easier than this. Take one look at Margaret Court this week. She's going through quite a bit of challenge at the moment. I mean, she's probably feeling marginalised and sort of squeezed out to the side. So she's feeling some persecution. She's feeling some difficulty. You are on the right path. You are on the right path in dealing with that hardship. Millions and millions and millions of believers, probably including these Greeks who we saw in this chapter, before you and me have walked this same journey, they have faced all types of hardship in varying levels and degrees. They've experienced all manner of dramas, but now for those ones who've walked before us, what they are experiencing is joy in the presence of Jesus Christ. They are tasting in the reality now the fullness of being honoured by the Father. Paul, the Apostle, describes this aptly for us in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says this, which is just gold. He says, this light momentary affliction, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And what's it, what is it? It's beyond all comparison. He says this light momentary affliction. It doesn't feel like it's light momentary affliction when we're in the middle of it. But Paul's using this here as a perspective to try and give us a picture of the glory that awaits. He says this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is the Calvary Road. This is the path of discipleship. It is both hard and it is both glorious. During this path, we keep our eyes on Jesus, who has absolutely blazed that trail before us and made this way possible so that we too can enjoy that glory with him forever and forever. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we come before you today just to uh, thank you again for this uh, glorious passage of Scripture. Lord, for this truth today, Lord, that uh, does hold nothing back from us and it tells us, Lord, that the Christian life will have challenges. Lord, I thought of uh, Matthew Henry the old commentator from the 1500s, Lord, who said that the road to glory is uphill and it's covered in thorns. Lord, it is challenging. 
Thank you, Lord, for letting us know that so that, Lord, we aren't shocked by the challenges that we may experience here. Lord, thank you today that we don't walk this journey alone, that we don't walk this path of hardship or challenge alone. We walk this path of challenge together as a body of Christians following, loving and serving Jesus together. Sure, there are some things that we go through alone, but even then we're not alone because you are with us. Father, today help us to see that. Help us to see that you give us the grace to carry on. You give us the grace to be sustained. Lord, thank you today that we not only see the challenges and the hardships, but we see, Lord, the glory that awaits. We see the fruitfulness. Father, we see the honour. We see what it is to know that we will be united with him uh, forever and forever. Please help us today to keep that firmly fixed in our focus, Lord. So that, Father, as we encounter these challenges, that you will continue to help us to uh, walk through them with you. Help us, Lord, to see each and uh, each other as well going through these challenges and come alongside them, Father, to encourage them and build them up because we all know we're at different stages of life. Sometimes people are going okay and others are going through a very deep, dark valley. Lord, help us to draw alongside them and to comfort them, Lord, and encourage them on this pilgrimage that we are all on. God, thank you for the blessing today that we have in the Scriptures. Thank you for the blessing today we have in the Holy Spirit to bring that alive in our hearts. And uh, thank you today that Jesus makes all this possible. But we give you thanks and praise now for that. In your precious name, amen.